Hello, everyone, and welcome to Saving Minds, the podcast that uncovers the best of what's new in the search for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease treatments. I'm Shanti Skiffington. And I'm Elliot Goldstein. And today, uh, we're very pleased to welcome our guest, uh, who is Dr. Larry Walker. Larry is the Snelling Professor of Neurology and Research Professor at Emory University's York Center. He has dedicated his entire research career to understanding protein misfolding diseases, which we've spoken about in the past. Um, Our listeners know that Alzheimer's disease is one of the most common, and Alzheimer's disease is Larry's focus. And his work has helped the research community really better understand how the root cause of Alzheimer's, which we know is amyloid, beta, and tau, uh, become toxic to brain cells. So Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So what we like to do in our podcast is really start at the beginning. And I apologize for the three-part question, but to get us started, could you help our listeners understand what protein misfolding diseases are, uh, maybe how many there are, and could you identify the most common that might be recognizable to our audience? Yes. Uh, Protein misfolding diseases essentially occur when proteins that we normally make go bad. So we obviously need proteins to construct cells in other parts of our bodies. And these proteins generally fold into a certain shape in order to have the function that, that nature has designed them to do. And what happens in these diseases is that the proteins misfold. That is, they fold into a shape that is not normal and in which condition they tend to be sticky. So they bind to one another. And they also, when they contact other proteins of the same type, they tend to cause those proteins to similarly misfold. And in this way, the amount of these abnormal proteins accumulates in the brain. It's sort of like a crystallization process. Or uh, in some of these diseases, uh, this accumulation can be in other parts of the body. And when this happens, the function of the organs that are involved basically declines. And in the case of the brain, uh, we lose our ability to normally function as human beings. There are um, at least... 30 protein misfolding diseases that are called amyloidoses. And if if any of the listeners have have watched the House series on TV, amyloidosis was a frequent potential diagnosis for many of the diseases that House dealt with. These are diseases in which different types of proteins misfold in different parts of the body, not just the brain, but this can happen in the liver, the bones, the kidneys, and and other regions. And there are at least 30 of these diseases uh, and, and many, many more that either involve amyloid or involve something that looks like amyloid, that is this protein that is accumulating in the organ. I would guess that there are at least 100 different diseases. The most common probably is Alzheimer's disease, which is, of course, a disorder in which the proteins accumulate in the brain in the form of what we call senile plaques or A-beta plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. There are a number of other diseases that involve abnormal proteins. These include, of course, Parkinson's disease, which you guys know well, 
Um, the amyloidoses in different parts of the body, which I mentioned, Huntington's disease is one, um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, is another. I, I find that these diseases, to me personally, are just very frightening. Um, and we know that Alzheimer's disease is on the rise. Uh, are protein misfolding diseases in general increasing? And if that's the case, um, how could you explain the increase? Yes, protein misfolding diseases are increasing for, I think, several reasons. The main one being that we are all simply getting older. Population in general, particularly in developed nations, is increasing. And as the, as the elderly population grows, the uh, diseases that involve abnormal proteins increase as well. And one reason I think this is, is because as we age, our bodies and our cells slowly lose the ability to eliminate abnormal proteins. We're probably making misfolded proteins all the time. When we're young, however, the cells can easily remove them or break them down in a way that they're not harmful. But as we get older, those quality control mechanisms in cells start to lose their function. And when this happens, the proteins are more likely to to increase and the probability of developing these various diseases increases as well. Another reason I think there are more protein misfolding diseases today is that we're better at diagnosing them. We have many new methods, for example, for allowing us to determine that proteins are accumulating in the brain or another part of the body, and even what type of protein it might be. So diagnosis is better as well. And, and I think, finally, um, r research has now and then turned up a totally unexpected protein that is involved in a disease in its misfolded form. Uh, for example, there's one that's called TDP43, which has just been discovered in the last 10 or 15 years to be involved in disease, diseases such as Lou Gehrig's disease and another known as frontotemporal dementia. So uh, I think aging is the big reason that we're seeing more and more of these diseases, but also simple awareness is another. Yes, uh, very helpful. Th thanks for that, Larry. Um, I'd like to ask a question, actually, to generalize. I know that's not necessarily uh, a, you know, a great way forward scientifically, but you've mentioned a, a host of different diseases and different proteins um, driving uh, these neurodegenerative diseases, and as you mentioned, even others outside of the uh, central nervous system. Um, what have been the biggest challenges facing researchers? I mean, none of these diseases have any root cause or disease-modifying therapy today, to my, to my knowledge. But what are the real challenges facing researchers when trying to find treatments, you know, the disease-modifying treatments for these diseases? Yeah, frankly, I think generalization is a really important part of what we as scientists should be doing. Because if we think outside of a, one particular disease, we may find commonalities among diseases that, that help us to organize our thinking about their cause 
And once we understand the cause, we can begin thinking in a realistic way about treatments. So, so I'm happy to generalize anytime. I think the one of the biggest challenges facing researchers dealing with these diseases is that uh, when it comes to, for example, developing therapies for diseases, we need to know as much as possible about them. And when it comes to pharmaceutical treatments, for example, the easy problems by and large have been solved. And Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, Huntington's, all of these protein misfolding diseases are not easy problems. Another issue, and I think this is a, a really big one with regard to these diseases, is time. Often these proteins start misfolding in the brain or another part of the body long before the symptoms become apparent. And in some cases, this can be 20 years or more where the disease is developing in the body, but there are no outward signs that anything's going on. And so by the time we know that something is wrong, it's too late. That there is there have been so many changes in the brain, for example, that uh, it's difficult to reverse those. So uh, when thinking about chronic diseases such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, it's sort of a cardinal medical principle that we need to treat early, as early as possible. And this is, I think, a direction that certainly the Alzheimer and Parkinson's fields are headed. If we wait too long, if we wait till the symptoms and the signs of the disease are apparent, then it may simply be too late to reverse the damage that's been done. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And of course, to treat early, we need to diagnose as early as possible. So the two go together. Um, and I know great strides have been made in, in early diagnosis for, for several of these, uh, of these diseases. Uh, you mentioned Alzheimer's. So let's uh, shift our focus a bit to uh, Alzheimer's uh, in, in particular. Um, highly prevalent, as we all know, approximately 50 million, million patients diagnosed worldwide with symptomatic disease and roughly a similar number as you're mentioning, with um, we call prodromal disease, who have all the pathology going on, if you like, but no uh, overt or easily diagnosed clinical signs and symptoms. Um, there have been a lot of clinical trial fails. In fact, all trials have failed in uh, trying to address the uh, root causes or un, you know disease-modifying aspects of, of, of the disease. But all of these drug candidates, uh, antibodies, small molecules, and others, have failed, and most of them have targeted amyloid beta, as you know, one in one way or another. And of course, we know there are multiple forms of amyloid beta, but many are calling for researchers to uncover other drug targets uh, away from the misfolded proteins, or certainly away from amyloid beta, which of course is a valid approach, since we, you know, our understanding is, is certainly not perfect. But but you feel that uh, these failures mean the research community should actually abandon amyloid beta as a target altogether, or are we missing something here? What are your thoughts, Larry? Yeah, this, of course, is is a hot topic of debate in the field. I think there's no question that amyloid beta, A-beta, is central to Alzheimer's disease. The genetic, biochemical, the pathological data all indicate that A-beta is a fundamental inciting factor, if you will, in the development of Alzheimer's disease. And that tau, tauopathy, is something that follows A-beta, but which is critically important 
for the development of dementia. So it's sort of a two-stage process in which abnormalities of A-beta, misfolding of A-beta, leads to abnormalities of tau. And these two together, in a sense, define what we call Alzheimer's disease. So I think there's no question that A-beta should remain on the table, in fact, in the center of the table. Uh, that being said, uh, I agree that, that we should consider all options because we're still learning about the disease and we have a lot to learn. One thing that has been known really now for a couple of decades uh, is that with regard to A-beta, there's a tendency to, for, for many people to think about the A-beta plaques, the senile plaques that are so obvious in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. In fact, what we've known for a couple of decades now is that A-beta also exists in small aggregates. In other words, where, where these sticky misfolded A-beta molecules just aggregate into, say, two molecules, maybe 12 molecules. It's, it's uncertain which are the most toxic form. But what we do know is that these small so-called oligomers of A-beta can be very harmful to cells. And these are something separate from the plaques, which are the obvious thing we see under the microscope. And I think we need to learn more about how oligomers are influencing brain function in order to go forward with more effective treatments. Um, and as I'd mentioned before, um, should we, you ask if we should abandon A-beta altogether as a target. And I, I think no. I think uh, another thing that we know because of the very long time course of Alzheimer's disease is that we need to be thinking about prevention. And the trials that have been run on Alzheimer's disease and which have failed have all been conducted on patients who were in the early stages of the disease. At this point, we know that the brain is full of abnormal A-beta and abnormal tau. So these may be simply taking place too late in the course of the disease for us to be able to, to reverse what's going on. So just to sum up what you're saying in really simple terms, not only do we need to, I think, target the right toxic forms of amyloid beta, i.e. these small aggregates, uh, oligomers, if you like, but also diagnose and intervene as early as possible most likely before clinical symptoms are, are, are apparent to have any chance of um, knocking out, if you like, or inhibiting this uh, dual prion disease, as Stan Prusner, the Nobel Prize winner, called it, duprions being uh, prions of A-beta and, uh, and tau. So um, I think those are good lessons and important um, uh, targets, if you like, or objectives for re researchers and drug developers like ourselves at Promise. Uh, Larry, just curious as we kind of wrap up our podcast, which has been amazingly educational, with all of the learnings that have taken place over the past decade or so, in your opinion, what do you think life is going to look like for an Alzheimer's disease sufferer 10 years from now? 10 years from now, if, if, if someone had asked me, let's say, uh, 20 years ago, when we would have a treatment, an effective disease-modifying treatment for Alzheimer's disease, I would have said within five to 10 years. 
And unfortunately, with every passing year, I probably would have given the same answer. However, I am very optimistic at this point. I don't expect 10 years from now that we will have a cure for Alzheimer's disease. In other words, something that will completely reverse the damage that's been done in the brain. I think that's just too much to hope for, given what we know right now. That said, I do think 10 years from now, we will have the ability to stabilize cognitive decline at an early stage of Alzheimer's disease so that at least it doesn't progress to the advanced dementia that eventually always happens in Alzheimer's disease. So that's that's one hope that I have for, for 10 years from now. Uh, the other is, and this has to do with our children and our children's children, I would like to think that we will be able to prevent Alzheimer's disease, or at least we'll have the knowledge that will allow us to prevent Alzheimer's disease from ever even starting in the brain. And I think we are making progress in that direction. We're not there yet, but I don't think it's unrealistic to think that 10 years from now, we will have in hand the knowledge required to prevent Alzheimer's disease in generations of people who have not yet reached old age. That would be fantastic. Um, We really appreciate you being on our show today, Larry. We've learned a lot and you have a wonderful way of explaining things. So we hope you might come back and join us someday. I'd be happy to do so. Wonderful. Thanks everyone for joining and uh, tune in next time. Thank you, Shanti and Elliot. Thank you, Larry.